Welcome to Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. David Zerung. On today's episode, Amelia Herbst interviews psychologist Dr. Nancy Raymore regarding psychology and media. Amelia, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. For our new listeners, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. I am currently a uh, doctoral psychology intern at the University of Washington at their Tacoma campus. Um, I am technically from Pennsylvania. Uh, I go to Chestnut Hill College as a doctoral student. Um, I am also the project manager for Psychology Radiocast. You have a very busy life, and it's going to be a memorable internship year for you in this uh, year of 2020 of pandemics and in the the Northwest uh, uh, wildfires. Uh, it's been a remarkable experience for you so far, probably. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your uh, leadership and your uh, editing skills for Psychology Radiocast. Um, uh, I know I, I really appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. Oh, well, thank you. I'm so happy to do it. So for this episode, you interview Dr. Raymore, uh, please introduce the listeners to Dr. Raymore and the backstory to this episode. So, uh, Dr. Nancy Raymore is one of the psychologists that are that's part of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. She focuses a lot on psychology and media. Um, so she is she is a clinical psychologist. She does see patients on a daily basis, but she also works a lot with getting information about the field out to the media. And unlike Someone like me, who feels a little iffy about talking to the, I probably still so early in my career, and I know a lot of other psychologists feel this way, feeling iffy talking to the media. She's a psychologist that seeks them out. Um, she wants to make sure that she is, you know, spreading the right information and, you know, giving the media um, an idea of some of her expertise to help them understand things that are going on. So she kind of blew me away, you know, outside of. The clinical work she does, she also does a lot of doing the good work of getting psychology out there. Yeah, it was impressive that she was modeling some of the things that she was talking about in the interview. So we got to hear information, but also at a more meta level, uh, observe how she was handling media. Yeah, I agree entirely. Um, some of the things that she was talking about for psychologist to use, you know, making sure that you've got your your talking points in order. You know, if the if you have somebody approach you to interview, tell them what you can talk about. Um, she did very much the same thing for this interview. And it was really remarkable to see how well spoken she was, how she like knew her points right off the bat. Even if I hit her with a question she wasn't expecting, how she was able to, you know, take the moment to think about it and then be able to respond. Um, so not just taking the information that she gave during this interview, but also listening to how she models it will help whoever listens. Yeah, I was really impressed with the wide range of themes that you covered, from history to hypnosis, from violent media to positive modeling, and from practice development to health enhancement. It was uh, remarkable. In the pre-show, you you commented that uh, this interview is very dense with information. Yeah, definitely is. Um, David, you kind of gave a bit of a little bit of each of the stuff that covers, but uh, Dr. Nancy starts with, 
you know, let's talk about the history of media. Media. Let's talk about how it came to be and why we ended up getting so invested in it. Let's talk about why people get so invested in it. Um, let's talk about the psychology behind that. And then what you need to know as a psychologist about how media might affect your clients or how media is even affecting you. And then how do we make media work out for the best for us? And here are the variety of ways that we can look at that. So it's a lot of information. This is a long interview. I'm assuming if you started listening to it, you saw how long it is and they're like, wow, okay. But it's worth it. There's there's a lot of really good, rich information in it. Amelia, thank you for interviewing Dr. Raymore for us. Absolutely. It was a blast getting the chance to sit down and talk to her. And now for the interview. Dr. Nancy, it is so great to have you on Psychology Radio Cast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. It is a pleasure, especially to talk about this topic. It's one of my favorites. Can you introduce the topic, Taz? You seem to have a lot of background in psychology in the media. Yes. Media is actually a, a type of storytelling. It's all about storytelling. And the best media tells the story in the most compelling way, no matter what the format is. It's weaving a story for you, whether it's in a 15-second ad or a two-hour documentary, in order to have an effect on you and how you think and act. And it all began with print media when the stories that used to be told orally began to be written down. And psychology adopted a program called bibliotherapy, which was a way of writing stories for children and adults who needed to grow and accomplish something through the inside of the characters. And if you look at almost all children's programming, children's television programming and YouTube programming, the characters are telling a story, something's happening to them through which they grow and accomplish and overcome obstacles. So things haven't changed too much from the beginning of time when we began taking the stories and writing them down. And then we moved to electronic media. Now, radio was the first type of electronic media. We tend to discount it, but it uh, has been forgotten as we have moved forward and developed new and uh, bigger ways of using technology and media. But radio was the first electronic or global media to really take hold. And we know the power of media through this first incident that occurred in radio. It's a historical event that occurred and it evidences the psychological impact of even radio. It was the famous War of the Worlds incident. In 1938, a reading from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds was used on a Halloween broadcast of Mercury Theater. Unfortunately, the reading told a story of ferocious and unstoppable Martians attacking the Earth, and listeners believed it was actually happening. They ran around screaming, packing suitcases, trying to leave town. The roads were jammed. And it was one of the first incidents that told us just how powerful the stories that we share on media are. And we then moved into television. 
Now, television is continually changing as the world is changing. And as technology becomes more available, it creates an opportunity for expanded world views and cultural acceptance. This is actually critical to the original intention of the media. Following the ability of radio to inform, educate, influence, and entertain, TV was developed by Philo T. Farnsworth at the age of 19 for the purpose of opening the doors to people from all over the world to meet one another. His concept was that if we could meet people from around the world, we could have a greater understanding of each other and our cultures and who we are and how we relate to one another. But the media, while it did fulfill this purpose, also morphed into a source of escape and pure entertainment. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Patty Chayefsky was an American playwright, screenwriter, and novelist. He's actually the only person to have three solo Academy Awards for screenplays. And he said, TV is not reality, it's an amusement park. And he introduced some movies that were actually media that were commentaries on the media. <clears throat> so the movies that he produced were movies that exposed the way that media is constructed and the way that it works. And this was very early on uh, in television history. There were several producers who actually shared the same types of programs and movies. And what they would do would be to create a, a, a program or a movie that would actually expose the way media was made. There was one in particular that was produced by a man by the name of Elia Kazan. And he created a movie called A Face in the Crowd in 1957. It was a very successful producer and used the movie to illustrate exactly how a Hollywood personality is constructed and created and the illusions that are used to create a celebrity. Then in 1966, there was a foreign film called The King of Hearts. It was the, about the stories and the illusions in life that we tell ourselves and that we prefer to live from. And it was one of the first films to suggest that we can choose how we believe to see things. So the King of Hearts sort of piggybacked on the work that was done uh, with the face in the crowd. Then Patty Chayefsky's work was heavily recognized in 1976 when he produced the movie Network. And if you've ever seen the movie Network, you know it was an outstanding film about just how far the media might go to gain an audience. And it profiled the psyches of the newscasters and the producers who might go too far to get ratings. And it also explored uh, the mental health aspect of producers and also uh, hosts, on-air hosts. So movies were already disclosing the power of the media to influence the mind in the 50s and 60s. And the influence on the development of identity began at the same time. So it sounds like just media in general has had its own separate development. But what was the influence of media on developmental psychology? Well, in uh, between 1953 and 1957, there were studies done uh, in the studies on culture and communication journal. Uh, 
And according to these explorations, there was a gentleman by the name of Marshall McLuhan, who is a Canadian philosopher and is universally regarded as the father of communication and media studies and the prophet of the information age. And he said, you become what you behold as a commentary on TV in the 60s. And we learned more about Marshall McLuhan's statement when Albert Bandura's work on social learning showed how you learn who to be from those that you are around through vicarious learning, role modeling, and observation. Bandura was educated in Canada and took a uh, teaching position at Stanford University. He was actually president of the APA in 1974. And he explains that with vicarious learning, you become involved in the emotions, behaviors, and ideas of those that you view, and you can develop a desire to model yourself after them very much like the bibliotherapy concept. And he found that according to social learning theory, models are an important source for learning new behaviors as simply as walking and holding a fork to more sophisticated modeling such as how you dress and your mannerisms. You can probably think of people that you know who model their parents. When you see their mannerisms and the way that they talk, you actually see their parents and the ways that children have modeled themselves after the adults, the important adults in their life. And after family, teachers, and significant role models, media actually has the greatest influence to create social learning. You normally choose models that remind you of yourself or of who you want to be. And most adults will tell you that they had a celebrity or sports figure that they admired and emulated growing up. And the adoption of the behavior is typically unconscious. And this is where the media comes in. We have evidence of information being adopted unconsciously as we watch the adoption of behaviors and mannerisms of media role models that you might like. And some good examples of this are uh, wearing a sp favorite sports figure's media jersey, the number that the sports figure would wear if they were playing. And you can see these jerseys at every sporting event that you go to. And another good example uh, of wearing uh, the attire of, a, of an idol or a role model was when Michael Jackson started wearing one glove. Kids went to school wearing one glove after Michael Jackson did it and they got in trouble for breaking dress codes, but it didn't matter. They wanted to be like Michael. And so the superficial characteristics of role models are generally adopted first. But it's not just superficial behavior that's modeled, especially in young children and adults. Often their ideals become your ideals. Your desire to emulate characters you see on the screen influences your beliefs that you then live out unconsciously. You accept ideas into your subconscious that have bypassed your conscious filter and become a part of your belief system. And that's because TV has a subliminal, subliminal and hypnotic effect, both in programming and especially in advertising. We are around many media models that come from TV, movies, the internet, and social networking.
And one concept is that of celebrity worship. Much in the same way as parental worship leads to role modeling, so does celebrity worship. Especially during the growth process, even those who don't follow celebrity gossip usually can't help but be a little enamored by the lives of actors and athletes and even Instagram models or Facebook models. I recall seeing a line that wrapped around a shopping mall and all of the young women were there to see an internet celebrity who had evolved simply from posting on YouTube. So <laughs> the ways that we actually find role models now has expanded dramatically. Well, that's true to really sit back and think about that. What would be the motivation of people to emulate famous individuals? I am often asked this question. Though some devotees genuinely find celebrity lives interesting, many people are drawn to the rich and famous because they themselves crave wealth and notoriety, or they just like to eavesdrop on a world that they're not a part of. There used to be a highly rated TV show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous to meet this need, and now there is reality TV. Uh, there are different sources on the beginning of reality TV. Some say with the filming of O.J. Simpson and the car chase down the highway by the police that was so popular that even more live celebrity shows started to emerge, whether it was good behavior on the part of celebrities or bad behavior. But it actually started with a PBS series uh, in which an American family was followed. The show is called An American Family. Uh, and the family was the Loudons. They were followed in their homes and in their lives to kind of show how an American family lives. But once the series ended, the family fell apart. Just showing how the images of perfection that aren't real actually uh, are shown, whether it's Facebook or on television. And that brings me to the next factor. Uh, another reason that vicariously observing celebrity life may be an attractive pastime is because from a distance, maybe many famous people appear powerful, flawless, and above all, happy, which can serve as a distraction when one's own life, real life, is going poorly. But while many celebrities are undoubtedly satisfied with their life, a psychological research studies would show that there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that make clear that the fame and fortune don't necessarily equate with contentment. So is there any harm in enjoying a look into a celebrity? Well, some experts warn that focusing too much on celebrities can cause mental distress or decrease a follower's satisfaction with their own life to say nothing of the negative effects of some fans' behavior. Uh, fan behavior uh, on the mental health of the actual celebrity. A powerful example is that the man who was John Lennon's biggest fan shot him after getting his autograph. So if you don't have a good sense of mental health, you may harass a celebrity, uh, you may follow them too closely, you may actually stalk them. So there, there's a lot in the mental health field to notice, not just in watching celebrities, but your impact on them as well. And especially with social media, too much exposure to perfect role models can lead to problems in your own assessment of yourself. You may begin to judge yourself. Uh, 
against the ideal image of media role models or even local role models, uh, exacerbating issues in self-esteem if you don't measure up. And the effect is significant and longer lasting for those who have an insecure self-image before viewing. This effect is especially true for Facebook with certain populations of teens who are already predisposed to self-judgment. Okay, interesting. Um, so if you don't mind, I want to take a mm -hmm. step back. Yes. Um, let's talk more about the subliminal and hypnotic influence of media on the mind. Um, how does the subliminal influence work? Uh, what is the magic of TV, movies, the internet, and advertising to influence us? Well, to begin, no matter whether you get your media from TV, podcasts, social media sites, your iPad or your phone, the same factors apply. The factors are more powerful on a big screen that gets you involved with surround sound and 3D images. But a good way to, to describe the subliminal influence is through the work of psychiatrist and hypnotherapist Milton Erickson up through the 80s. Because he was such an effective therapist, his sessions were recorded so that his words could be analyzed and shared for others to learn. And he's noted for his approach to the unconscious mind as a creative and solution generating tool, which is the foundation of good hypnosis. Now, one of Erickson's students said after learning Erickson's method that life is consecutive hypnosis. And this understanding meant that the outside ideas and thoughts that have entered your subconscious have become your beliefs, which are really just thoughts that have entered the subconscious and unconscious mind and have taken hold and become your reality or your illusion. So you continue to see and verify from life experience what your illusion already is. You continue to see and verify what has been planted there. And if we already have a belief we attach more to the message that supports our current belief and less to conflicting messages. This is a powerful factor in politics. And Erickson believes that you lose your true self in this way. And so understanding media influence is critical to mental health and cognitive beliefs. He used hypnosis to help clients get back in touch with his subconscious mind to see what was there and what was healthy and what was not. Moving toward rewriting anything in the thought process that didn't serve the individual. Therapy for him was a process that should be tailored to serve the individual and not the other way around. And so one of the ways that I discuss uh, in my book, Get Real, Produce Your Own Life, is to start being conscious of what you're viewing and listening to and its impact on you. But I will discuss that uh, actually a lot more later. And uh, Erickson was really an influential person in the development of how uh, trance works, how hypnosis works, and how media actually uses hypnosis to influence us. You know what? I really, I really like Milton Erickson. Um, I, do. I do too. <laughs> there's just something about him. Um, so with that, uh, what is media hypnosis and how are we influenced by it? Well, Hypnosis is a wakeful state of focused attention and heightened suggestibility with lower awareness of what is going on around you. 
So for example, during one of my hypnosis trainings, I was asked to be a participant in a demonstration of a hypnosis technique. And asked, afterwards, somebody asked me why the phone ringing during the session didn't bother me. And my response was, what phone? I actually didn't hear the phone ringing. <laughs> so the ideas you take in while you were in this state are called trances. But since trances are only learned ideas, they can be unlearned. You aren't conscious, again, back to the definition of hypnosis, focused attention and heightened suggestibility with lower awareness of what is going on around you. So when you see somebody uh, using media and looking really very entranced, you have to understand that the trances are only learned ideas that can be unlearned, which was Milton Erickson's point. When you, what you believe is produced by your life and your exposures and can be changed. So every person is, uh, in, in his terms, hypnotized by the images fed to them and by their experiences and their culture and the media. They're not different influences. And you often believe them without examining whether you like the trance or not. So, for example, in crime shows, we're made to like characters who do the wrong things for the right reasons. And we know from research that those who watch too many crime shows tend to overestimate the likelihood of personal harm and they may av avoid going out more. So as people are watching things, uh, even too much of anything, you can begin to feel influenced by it. And in the example of crime shows, you actually overestimate the likelihood that you may be hurt. But the upside, uh, there's always an upside to media. And the upside is that all of the crime shows seem to have the effect of increasing the numbers of people who are interested in going into the criminal justice system. That's really interesting, especially thinking about crime shows. Because unfortunately, I was one of those for the longest time that that's all I watched and listened to was, you know, crime TV and, you know, criminal podcasts. So I feel like I feel like I learned a little bit about myself today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. And, you know, you talked about Milton Erickson liking Milton Erickson. He actually was more attuned to what was going on with people because he was colorblind and tone deaf. And so uh, he became much more focused on people and what they were saying and what the messages were that were coming forward uh, from the media. So uh, that, that makes it a lot of fun to look at it that way. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, that's interesting. The more yeah. you know. <laughs> yes. Um, what are some of the elements of hypnosis that you should be aware of when using media so that you are less susceptible to outside influence until you have had a chance to examine the message? Well, first is to remember that all media is storytelling, whether it's a billboard, whether it's a 15-second ad, whether it's a documentary, all media is storytelling, especially on social media. It's like a reality show about what you think and where you went and, and how you're engaging people looking at your social media. And whatever the show is, whether it's a television show, uh, if you're watching something on your iPad or social media, you begin to identify with the hero of the story and you become engaged and you want to see the hero complete their journey. So 
you know, think about the, the extraordinary popularity of all the Star Wars movies. You want to see the hero complete the journey, and that's a huge factor in keeping engaged through storytelling. And uh, another, it's another in, uh, element of subliminal persuasion that's very strong in advertising. There's a story in every ad if you, if you look at it. And uh, that brings me to another method of uh, hypnosis used in media, which is association. So advertising often uses false associations or unrealistic promises. So when you see another ad with a baby, or a puppy, or a mansion, start to wonder what false associations will be made between those images and a product, and for what product. So for example, anytime I see a baby in an ad, <clears throat> I consciously view and I say, okay, now what are they going to associate with a baby? We know that uh, babies, puppies, and uh, images of wealth are the ones that are most influential in ads. So if you can create an association between a product and uh, a, a, an idea, you can actually create a, a great audience for your product. It's actually a form of classical conditioning where two things become associated by pairing them together, uh, by paying attention and sitting back and watching as an observer. You begin to uh, exercise uh, conscious viewing and we're going to talk about conscious viewing uh, a great deal in the future uh, of our podcast today. And uh, it really breaks up the subliminal absorption uh, of uh, an ad as it takes you in. Then uh, a third element of hypnosis is what we call peer viewing. We are more influenced by content when we view with peers. And especially when snacking during viewing. If you're on a diet, don't go to a Super Bowl, Super Bowl party. You will eat more when you eat with friends, and especially when you're engaged uh, in a TV program with, with peers. Uh, if we look at the fourth element of hypnosis, which is models and heroes, this is part of the concept of social learning. And in the 50s and 60s, kids used to wonder if they could find a way to fly like Superman. And before they uh, got old enough to separate fantasy and reality, this was actually a, pro <clears throat> a part of their thought process, and Superman became the superhero. As we discussed, this occurs primarily for the biggest characteristics in a role model and for the secondary ones. So think again of all the people who own a jersey, but also think about the, the kids who want to be like that favorite sports figure. And they actually form a bond with them. I know a lot of adults often will tell me that they read the biographies of their favorite sports figures even after they grew up. And they look at how they became attached to the ideas, to that hero's journey. And you're much more likely to attach to the outcomes of a character if you see yourself like them or want to be like them. So if you have uh, aspirations to play college baseball and you are, are following baseball figures, you're much more likely to attach to that character's behaviors and their morals and their lifestyles because you want to be like them.
Uh, I know when I made um, my Mastering Relaxation video curriculum, uh, models and heroes were a primary aspect of how children learn uh, to reduce stress in the, in the curriculum. And there are what are referred to as parasocial relationships with those that you frequently associate with on media. A parasocial relationship isn't someone you know. It's not a person. Uh, it's, it's a media <clears throat> celebrity or a media role model that you feel like you know. You feel like that celebrity. You call them by their first name. And you think of them in terms of, oh, what would Jennifer do? Or how would Oprah handle this? Because they're in your living room, they're on your phone, they're in your devices. And this is really a powerful element of uh, models and heroes. They begin to feel like your family. And sometimes you spend more time with these uh, role models than you do with your own family. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sitting here reflecting about it for a minute, you know? <laughs> Good. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's true. Um, you know, we think about, well, uh, uh, definitely with dress, definitely with secondary characteristics, mm -hmm. but also uh, with someone that you, that you really like, you begin to uh, want to adopt who they are, which is a little bit scary because as Erickson said, then you lose yourself. That's good information to have. Yeah. Um, are there biological effects of media as well as psychological ones? Uh, there are a few. Um, and actually, there, there are a lot more. But um, those involve studies of what happens in the brain as people view. But <clears throat> for, the, for our purposes, uh, for one, those who watch more than three hours of media a day, uh, not including studying or visiting with other people, there's a greater likelihood of being overweight. So if you're a couch potato or you binge watch on a regular basis, you have a greater likelihood of being overweight. Uh, also, if a high intake of media is combined with excessive work demands, you may experience inability to pay attention or to pay full attention. This is what is called techno brain burnout. And it's identified by difficulty with thinking, desperately multitasking or compulsively ingesting media on all of your devices. And then, uh, as we talked about, there's the aspect of eating more when, you, when you're watching media, which contributes to the overweight. But even with children, there are studies that show that children are much more likely to ask their parents to buy sugary cereals after they see commercials about them. Now, we do have brain studies that, that look at really what's happening in the brain uh, as people view TV. And really, the brain just lights up uh, <clears throat> there are so many things about, about what people are watching that even if they cause distress, people want to continue watching. Amelia, you talked about uh, watching a lot of crime shows. There probably were times when those shows were upsetting, but you had to follow the hero's journey. You had to see how it would end, didn't, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we can see in the brain that, that we're actually, we're mesmerized. We're, we are hypnotized or entranced in what we're seeing. Okay, okay. Um, so... Why does media cause emotional responses and attachments that are similar to those we might have to friends and family? Well, 
one of the aspects of this uh, that answers this question is called participation in the story. And this is where producers, you know, when you're watching a great movie or a great TV show, you just, you, you admire the producer who puts something together that's so, um, that's so enveloping. And they do it through the elements of production, through cuts and zooms and colors and rapid scene changes, and visual appeal and interesting sound effects and, mu and, and music that cause you to participate in the story, in the hero's journey. And they use something called voiceover. Voiceover is, for example, in a chocolate commercial. Uh, the person in the commercial may not say a word. The person is slowly eating the chocolate and they're enjoying it. And you can see how happy they are eating the chocolate. But there's a voice in the background telling you how much you deserve to spoil yourself. As you participate in the journey of the woman eating the chocolate and you're listening unconsciously to the voiceover, you're actually being influenced and you're drawn in. And you may want to feel what the characters feel. You may even mourn when a series goes off the air. When I was interviewed by ABC News about why people mourned when Breaking Bad went off the air, it was because Brian Cranston had been invited into their living rooms for years, and they're going to miss him. He had become like family, and like with any personal loss, you don't know what you'll do without him. So the concept of family occurs because they're in your living room. You may have spent more time with them than your own family. They may, you may have a parasocial relationship with this celebrity. And while you don't have a personal relationship with them, you do more in the loss because it was a part of your routine, a part of your life that you relied on to feel happy. So... I'm trying, like, thinking about people in my own life and thinking mm -hmm. about, like, mourning of TV shows and even just, like, you know, really stressful TV shows in general. Mm -hmm. Are there people who are more susceptible to negative media effects? Well, they are. And my, my book is called Get Real, R-E-E-L, Produce Your Own Life. Uh, so in an R-E-E-L world, uh, it's often more exciting than the R-E-A-L world. That's and true. It's, meet, yeah, it's meeting more of your needs than your actual real life. And so a feeling of addiction can occur. Now, there's no diagnosis of TV addiction or internet addiction, but certainly there are symptoms that are characteristic uh, of addiction. When I gave a college at, at a local uh, university, they asked if I would speak on internet addiction. And uh, what I would say about that, it's when you need it, have to have it, and can't live without it, and you work your life around it, you have trouble getting away from it. And there are people with risk factors who, uh, for this type of addiction, even though it's not a formal DSM diagnosis. And uh, one of the factors are introversion and extroversion. Extroverts want to go out. They want to be with people. They're not happy sitting at home. But an introvert is much more comfortable at home with a screen because it's safer. Uh, it's a way of retreating. It's a way of escaping. And so an introvert is going to have more media influence because they spend more time with media, uh, typically. An introvert's happy staying at home uh, alone with a book. Uh, or with a uh, TV show. Then there are those who have weak inhibitions and a weaker locus of control. So if you say to yourself, 
I'm only going to watch two hours of television today, or I'm only going to look at my social media when I get home from work. And if you don't have, uh, if your inhibitions are weak, or you don't have a good internal locus of control, that external influence that's coming toward you allows you to get much more deeply involved and therefore much more susceptible to uh, the negative effects. And then there are those who have a high level of stress or anxiety that use media just to escape. Uh, they uh, turn off, they shut off their mind, and they become completely entranced in what is being presented to them through media. And that type of escape makes you much, uh, lowers that resistance much more and causes you to be much more uh, affected by what you're viewing. And uh, if you have a lack of FaceTime social support, if you have a, a lack of real social support, uh, the intermittent reinforcement, which again goes back to classical condition, can become addictive. So let's say you don't have a lot of friends, but you've made a lot of friends on Facebook. Now, when you post on Facebook, you, uh, you may get a like or you may get a comment uh, or somebody might like your picture. And <clears throat> because you don't know if that's going to happen or not, there is the factor of classical conditioning called intermittent reinforcement. When you don't know when you're going to be reinforced, it becomes very addictive. The same uh, element uh, is in effect uh, with pets, with real life relationships. If you feed a dog from the table once and then you do it again in three months, the dog is going to sit there forever and, and hope that there will be uh, an intermittent reinforcement uh, that they're going to get fed from the table. This is uh, intermittent reinforcement is uh, in real life is, uh, is uh, in effect with people who uh, maybe have a long distance relationship or an affair. There's a feeling of addiction because of the intermittent reinforcement and it's actually becomes mistaken for, for a real factor or a real, a real type of affection. So lack of FaceTime social support, uh, real, real social support can lead to addiction to this intermittent reinforcement because characteristically it's so addictive. Uh, and those with uh, OCD or depression, uh, with OCD there's difficulty regulating viewing uh, and with depression, there's a tendency to simply escape through media. <clears throat> also, uh, a factor is limited mobility. Those who don't have uh, the opportunity to get out and do things due to either a physical disability or currently with COVID are much more likely to, uh, to view media. And those with pre-existing insecurities who are seeking self-validation of, of who they are through media are much more likely to be negatively affected. Is there a mutual interaction between you and the media? Absolutely. Uh, in my book, Get Real, Produce Your Own Life, I explain how we influence media and how media influences us and how media is always on the pulse of what we're thinking and feeling. And it's, it's like a relationship. So we all know that if you go on Facebook and you look something up, or if you go even on uh, the internet and look something up, when you get on your computer, you're more likely to be sent advertising that relates to what you've already shown an interest in. Or if you visited YouTube videos, you're much more likely to be sent, uh, and you also might like this. You know, so we're influencing media to then in turn influence us. Uh, 
to give us more of what we want. And they're giving us more of what we want, which is then influencing us. So you're telling them what you want, you're getting what you want, and then you're uh, giving them feedback about how popular it really is. Uh, and any, any media, you'll see that there are reviews, uh, especially uh, with movies. There's Rotten Tomatoes and the popcorn reviews. So when people go to a movie uh, that's really popular and a lot of people go to that movie, the media is going to produce more movies of that genre, whether it's comedy or crime or science fiction. Uh, there are formulas for winning programming and advertising and website presentation that are researched and used over and over by looking at the numbers and the audience participation. And that's how advertising works too. And if you don't like something that you see on a network your voice is very powerful because not that many people are going to notify a network that they're offended by, by material or that they really love material. And so your voice is going to represent a huge part of the viewing audience. And so you can influence what's on by simply uh, making your voice heard and uh, they influence you by giving you more of what you need. So that brings us to one of the, uh, the, the cures that I'll get into even a little bit more later, but it's called conscious viewing. And again, if you think of, uh, of advertising, when an ad starts, I begin conscious viewing immediately. And I ask myself, what product or service are the advertisers trying to associate with this product? And I am usually surprised by how remote the connection is. And again, I will say at this point in time, uh, I am not endorsing any product. I am not endorsing any service. And I do not have any connections to any advertisers, products, or distributors. But I'm going to use an example at this point to talk about uh, the Geico Gecko and the Liberty Mutual Emu. Now, they have nothing to do with insurance, but the actual association becomes a favorable relationship, and you like to be surprised by what the gecko will do next. Surprise keeps you viewing. You like to be surprised, and if you think of the popularity of shows like This Is Us and A Million Little Things, you never know what will happen. The same is true of good crime shows. Um, that, that you just never know what's going to happen, which is one of the reasons why the element of surprise makes crime shows so popular. Uh, you never know who it is until the end, and, it, and, and it's usually a surprise. Uh, and then with the intervention of the internet, uh, it became a game changer because constant, ever-changing sources of, of information and entertainment are so easily accessed providing continual reinforcement. So if you're not getting reinforcement in your life, you can always get it on a screen somewhere. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity be to become overly involved. But on the positive side, uh, for example, when somebody posts that they're an organ donor uh, and that they've become an organ donor on the internet, it tends to increase the number of people who become organ donors. So it's not all bad. There's the influence of media is never all bad. You just have to become a conscious viewer. Uh, in a the talk I gave about the uh, internet addictive behavior, uh, I explained the classical condition of intermittent reinforcement. 
social media, you have the opportunity to uh, possibly get reinforced at any given time. Uh, and in real life, you know, you don't get that from people and you might, but, but on the other hand, you might also get negative reinforcement. So this is one of the risks uh, of, uh, on mental health. You may experience exclusion on social media, bullying, uh, or ignoring intentional or otherwise. So too much social media is like, is like gambling. You may get the reinforcement from a slot machine or a Facebook post, and you may not. Uh, which brings me to one of the only actual uh, diagnoses uh, of addiction is uh, internet gaming disorder. Uh, internet addiction is not, internet gaming disorder is. Uh, and you can, you can still experience withdrawal and over-involvement without a diagnosis, but uh, in studies, there was much higher life satisfaction uh, in people who were doing less internet gaming. So again, the internet gaming is a type of escape uh, into a, a, a reality, a, a fictional reality. All right. Um, it's a lot to think about. It is. <laughs> so many factors. Yes. Um, how can viewers regain their personal and psychological control during media consumption? And are there various elements to conscious viewing? Absolutely. Um, this was the point of, of get real producer in life. When your heart is pounding and you have lost track of time and you aren't aware of others around you, you may be over involved. And even if you aren't, you're still taking in the subliminal messages of all types of media. So I explained the, con the concept of conscious viewing, which be can become a, a way of actually conscious living. And it's critical, and I don't mean critical uh, as you judge or criticize, but instead critical as to question and compare to see if the message of what's coming toward you resonates with the best part of you. So critical listening, viewing, and reading, not to be critical, but to see what's going on, to observe, especially if you're getting pulled in, and see if the message resonates with you. In an, uh, an interview I did uh, for the Chicago Tribune Review, I explained how we want to feel and we want to be surprised and we don't want to disengage. And, and I said, if it's healthy, then you go for it. But if it's not, don't miss your cousin's wedding to, to stay immersed in your media. And most of all, watch as an observer. Decide what messages you want to accept and those you don't. If you feel yourself really pulled into something that's maybe too violent or too upsetting, step back, observe, watch as an observer, or don't watch at all. Um, don't become desensitized to violence by being over-engaged. Instead, go with your initial reaction that this doesn't feel good or that I think I should disengage from this and allow yourself to turn it off, make a different choice, uh, take a media vacation, go outside and clear your head. And yes, there are definitely various elements to conscious viewing. So uh, I call the first one curiosity and observation. Get curious, and I always get curious as soon as I see certain commercials. Hmm, I wonder what they're going to associate with this. You know, insurance is great, you know, insurance ads. And uh, then after I get curious and observe the message, I ask myself if I'm buying into this message. 
How do I feel in my gut as I view this? This is part of the curiosity aspect of not being negatively influenced by media. And without judging uh, a, a website or a TV show as good or bad, does this show have a positive or negative effect on me? And if it is negative, am I allowing myself to be involved and to, and to feel victimized? So you want to detect the trances, the messages, or the beliefs portrayed by the characters. And if you're having trouble uh, in this domain, um, you may have developed some beliefs that really don't serve you and that aren't even uh, yours. And uh, you may need to identify those beliefs through uh, CBT. Uh, which might help you to replace erroneous or unproductive beliefs, and simply by acting on information that you observe and making changes. Um, you can watch less of something. You cannot watch it at all. You can make a different choice. You can change a channel. You can change a YouTube channel. You can uh, completely abandon media altogether. But you want to, you want to get curious. You want to observe and you want to be in control of what media is presenting to you and how you're being affected by it. And by conscious viewing, uh, you really learn to do that. And the truth of the matter is, it's almost like living mindfully. Mindfulness training is wonderful for developing the capacity to distance yourself from TV, from a situation, from your own thoughts, from your own emotions. And so mindfulness training is almost uh, uh, goes hand in hand with conscious viewing. And so uh, if you can adopt some of these, uh, some of these ways of working with media, you're much less likely to be impacted by it. All right. So we just learned a lot about the media and its impact on like the individual and how the individual impacts the media as well. Um, so we're going to shift focus a little bit. Um, how does a psychologist approach the media to have an impact on explaining the psychology behind media and how to live a healthy life in an age dominated by screens? Okay, so uh, this is called pitching to the media. Now, uh, it's always important to understand that you don't want to be uh, interviewed in the media just, you know, to, to, to pad your resume. You want to look at your own intentions. <laughs> Why do you want to enter the world of media? Why do you want to present yourself as an expert in media? And once you are clear in your intention, then you can use video on your website so the journalists can see you on the screen talking about what is most important or relevant to your own interests and experience. So first you want to create a, a really good intention. Then you want to highlight your specialty. What is it that makes you special and unique? Do you have a specialty, a book, or some research on an area of expertise? Uh, do you have a book that you want to promote and uh, the topic of the book at the same time? And if, if you're working with the media and, and they send it, let's say, uh, and I'll talk about this in just a minute, let's say the media is looking for somebody who's an expert on anxiety. Well, if you've written a book on anxiety, you're an expert on anxiety. Uh, but if you work with people every day, 
and your private practice specialty is anxiety, then you're an expert in anxiety and the, the ways to treat it. And so if someone wants to talk to you about that, uh, that's a good subject for you. And uh, if there's something going on, uh, there's a lot of political books being uh, written right now, and so it makes it makes your topic especially relevant. So let's say you're an expert in anxiety, and we uh, learn that a lot of people who've been quarantined are becoming anxious about going out and being in the public again. This is the perfect time for you to pitch uh, a, a program on, um, on anxiety and how to manage it. And when you pitch uh, the media, <clears throat> what you want to do is uh, list your topic, uh, a paragraph about your credentials, and then give them the Q&A. You, you want to list the questions and then the little key points with your answers. You don't give them your whole answer, but you list the questions you want to be asked and some key points about the answer so that you are the perfect guest for any media uh, interview in print, uh, for a website, for a, and there are some really big websites that are actually online publications. Uh, and you want to make it simple for them so that you are the perfect guest and you get invited back again. So you want to create, create an interest. Why is this topic interesting? Why is it important? Why would you be the one to talk about it and then provide the question and answer? Okay. Now, when, you, when you're doing something like this, you want to create uh, an opportunity for them to find you. So when a reporter is looking to run an interview on autism, will your name appear in a search engine? Do you have a website? Do you have a blog in which you talk about, about autism uh, and child development? Have you established yourself as an expert? So let's say a reporter doesn't have time to go looking. They just go on the internet and they, they do a search and they see whose name pops up in, in connection with autism. And so you have to actually uh, not only be an expert, but you have to let people know that you're an expert. You have to kind of get yourself out there. And you can join something called HARO. It's capital H, capital A, capital R, capital O. Uh, and you can reach an audience while remaining professional uh, with Harrow. You have to avoid giving your opinion. You have to uh, be careful to use research or uh, accepted and proven information if, you're, uh, if, if you pitch to Harrow. So Harrow is something that comes to you in your mailbox uh, a couple times a day. And it says, we need to do an interview on blank. And sometimes it will list the publication and sometimes it will say anonymous. Um, if, if it's a publication that you'd love to be, be in and promote yourself in, uh, then definitely send a pitch uh, if the topic uh, is relevant for you. But if it's, if it's not, uh, don't waste your time because you'll kind of get more or less blackballed by Harrow for continuing to pitch ideas that really aren't relevant to the topic. Uh, so, um, I, I have in the past talked about the psychology of food, the psychology of fashion. But if those aren't things that you can speak to, uh, don't pitch it because um, they'll look at you and they'll say, this, is not, this is some, isn't somebody that we want to interview now or in the future. But Harrow, they're often, sometimes they're TV shows, sometimes they're radio, sometimes they're guests for podcasts. A lot of them are for either print or online publications. 
And uh, if you can reach an audience and get some good concepts out about psychology, uh, then by all means, this is, this is a good way to do it. You can ask the reporter to send you the link when the interview is complete so you can see if you've been correctly quoted, but you can't make them do it. So be careful what you say and how you say it because you may be misquoted and there's nothing they're going to do to retract it once it's printed. Okay, so <clears throat> that's one of the, the warnings about, about any type of media interview. As I said, you can ask, you can say, hey, can I see the comments that you're going to use? And some uh, reporters are very great, gracious and they'll do that. You can, but also always, always say, yes, I'm willing to take my time to interview with you. And what I'd love to have in return, since they're not paying you, you're never going to get paid for any of this. Uh, what you want in return is for them to send you the link. So you can put it on your, your website or, your, or on your homepage or, you know, uh, put it out on social media. Hey, uh, I had a chance to talk to this reporter from the Chicago Tribune Review today about this, this important topic. And then you, you know, you put the link up. Up and you send people to your website where hopefully you have written a blog about the topic and included the link from your interview. This is, this is really important. If you want to get some information out, first you, you, you write a blog, hey, somebody interviewed me about um, uh, EMDR and the use of EMDR recently. Well, I, I put up a blog about EMDR and I added the link to the, the podcast about that topic, uh, which really strengthens the message you're sending people through your own website, which is a form of media. See, so this is, this is, this is, this is so creative. You, there are so many creative ways to, to instruct people and to help people uh, through media that it's really, it's worth, it's worth the trouble to do. So if you can do podcasts or write a blog, even with just within your website, you don't have to have a special independent blog. But if you have a blog to establish yourself, uh, you can put video uh, of you if you've done a live interview, or you can just make your own video. Uh, it, research currently is showing that uh, video is a, is a more powerful attractor on a website for people to go through, to go to. And one of the most important things about pitching the media is not to just send them uh, really good tips on child development for parents, because this is too generic uh, and it's, it's just not interesting. Think about solving a problem. Okay, so what problem currently exists and be current. Uh, do as much as you can to be current. So uh, I did a show on four ways to make, to create a happy Valentine's Day and improve your relationship. That's relevant only on February 14th. Uh, so, so look at what, what is current. And there's a woman by the name of Joan Stewart. She calls herself the publicity hound. And the publicity hound will send you in your email box suggestions for what's current, what's relevant, what's seasonal. Uh, she has a list of current topics to jog you into thinking about good pitches, as, such as right now, uh, if you are an expert on child development and education, you might want to talk about uh, how kids might feel about going back to school. Uh, what will be the impact of changes in online learning? Uh, during COVID. Uh, you can go to publicityhound.com to sign up for Joan's free newsletter. And 
another uh, aspect of making yourself attractive uh, for, for journalists is to create a media following. Now, this involve, involves preparing your outreach. And it's not essential, but it might be of interest to, uh, for example, uh, a freelancer who wants to get their name out not only through their publication, but through yours. So if you can post anything that you do for the media on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever you use, and attract an audience and have enough followers on those media sites that you become interesting to uh, a, a journalist. So if you have a whole lot of Twitter followers or Facebook or LinkedIn followers, they know that you're going to post whatever they do with you and you're going to have a lot, of, you're going to have a lot of people that will see it and will share it and will comment on it, which creates free publicity for them. So it's a win-win for everybody. Um, and uh, a reporter may even find you to interview through your social network. Uh, I had somebody call me uh, because they saw a post that I put up about a topic and they called for an interview on the topic. I, I just put a post up about it. It was that simple. Uh, and you can, uh, so, and, and this is a little extreme, but if you really want an interview, you can list the number of followers that you have on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn to show that you, you are not only that you're media savvy, but that your message of the interview is going to get out. It's, it's going to be shared, okay? Now, press releases are, are great if you have a product or a book uh, or a DVD uh, or a series of audio recordings. Press releases get attention. So if you have a new product or book, you can send media outlets your press release. Uh, and if you have an agent or someone who can act as an agent, it will be helpful for getting noticed, uh, particularly in a national outlet. Uh, reporters get slammed every day uh, from, from things coming uh, on their desk or, or on their screen. And uh, if you want to get an interview, you can do a press release and send it to multiple outlets to promote yourself. Uh, for example, a gentleman by the name of Tom Brown, he was the author of How to Make Time for Your Life, uh, was recently interviewed because he sent out a press release, and USA Today called him uh, to ask him uh, the importance of keeping a calendar. It can be something that simple. Uh, another product you want to create is called a one-sheet. Um, first of all, if you can, if you have a website, Make a page about yourself as uh, a media uh, source, and uh, on the one sheet you want to create, you want to state um, everything that I just talked about. So that that you want to talk about yourself in the in the one sheet. You want to talk about the topics that you're an expert on. Um, it should tell who you are, why you're an expert, and list some topics that you're already ready to talk about. Like if they just call you right now, you can talk about and then be ready. You may have time to prepare for an interview or they may want it today because they have a deadline. So uh, your one sheet tells people, and the one sheet can be something you include right on your website, on your what we call the media page. And on that media page, you can list things that you've, uh, outlets that you've uh, worked with in the past, uh, anything that's relevant. And get specific. Um, Think about who is the audience that I want to reach with this. Be current for that audience. Uh, remembering that journalists are getting swamped. Um, and 
lots of reporters freelance and they've already been assigned a topic for a magazine or a, an online outlet. So if you send them the right thing at the right time, you have a much better chance of getting an interview. A lot of it is luck and getting noticed. But again, notice trends, notice opportunities, because these are important and we're going to talk about trends uh, in just a minute. But um, right now, media outlets uh, want to talk about Black Lives Matter. They want to talk about the rights of the LBGTQ population. Uh, they want to talk about, uh, again, returning to school. They want to talk about COVID, what works and what doesn't. And so anything that you have to offer uh, about how people should, should uh, use their words, for example, even, um, <laughs> when talking about uh, minorities, and I, I, I'm going to get into that also, hopefully, if we have time today, about how to do that and the impact of that. So what I'm trying to say is be prepared to speak about almost anything at almost any time. If you uh, become uh, a good guest on a show or for a magazine, you may be contacted on almost anything. And, you know, at first, you might think that you don't know a whole lot about it, but in fact, you might. I got a call from um, a newspaper in Florida because a, a man had been bitten by a chiropractor's dog in the chiropractor's office. Oh, no. Yes. And so uh, the chiropractor said, my dog would never bite anyone because uh, he's not, he, he just doesn't bite people. You must have antagonized him. You must have done something to my dog. And the man, you know, insisted he hadn't. And so the dog got impounded. <laughs> The dog was taken to prison, and uh, the the newspaper wanted to know why the human the animal rights groups were coming out free Fido let Fido out out of prison, and and the it was an overwhelming support for the dog, not for the person who had been bitten, and so the uh, the newspaper uh, the journalist was just saying why. You know, wh why would this happen? And, you know, other psychologists from the American Psychological Association were also interviewed. We were all mentioned in the article. About, so, so sometimes when you think you don't know about something, you actually do know, and maybe you can address a topic, because there is a lot of evidence about the, um, the extraordinary uh, dedication to animal rights organizations and animal rights people. Uh, and so that... that uh, passion actually was what was behind trying to save the dog rather than the person. And um, it, it, it made for an interesting article. Another example, this is another time when you think you, you, you get called for an interview or you see on Harrow that there's an interview that you might pitch to. Um, the topic was that there was a neighborhood flasher who had flashed a school gymnasium during a basketball game. And they wanted to, they asked me how the incident should be addressed with the students to protect their mental health. So all these kids from the school, from all these different grades, actually saw this flasher. Now, my first, first thought was that I had not been trained in graduate school on how to address flashers. But in reality, the rules for crisis intervention generalized here and it became possible. This was a crisis intervention situation. So you can always turn an interview down if you don't feel truly qualified, but stop and think, maybe I do actually, I can offer some help and some guidance to people who might be looking for it uh, on this topic.
Yeah, you truly don't actually know what you know until you have to put it into practice, right? Until you have to know. Wow. And, and we do it with our patients all the time. Patients present questions to us. And at first we think, oh dear, what am I going to say? And then you realize you, you pull from your own experience and, and what you do know. And, and then um, it just becomes, and, and that's why therapy is such an engaging thing for the therapist. You know, you're constantly asking, what do I know about this that I can offer this patient or this journalist? Uh, very similar kinds of needs and, and responses. That's so true. Yeah. So what kinds of content do journalists want to receive from psychologists? Um, they want something trendy, for sure. Um, they, they prop, that's trendy or what would be called seasonal. Um, <clears throat> so if you are getting a, a, a when you get Harrow's uh, email in the morning, there'll be uh, pitches for education, for technology, for business, for lifestyle, for, um, for current events and for food. And so uh, look at everything you would be surprised what you know about what you think you don't know. And if it's trendy and it's going to be, if it's trendy, it's going to be in a Harrow pitch. So you might get really good ideas just by looking at what Harrow is pitching. And each pitch has a, uh, a publication assigned to it. And so you can say, well, I really would love to be interviewed by this publication. Um, and a lot of them are anonymous An anonymous, um, Notice it either means it's such a big publication that they don't want to be swamped with pitches, or it means that it's a really small website and they don't want you to know that you might not be interested in it if it's, if it's not, you know, something you want to be a part of. But uh, most of, there are a lot of recent trends that, that could be addressed right now. Uh, the limits on screen time that used to be so controversial and the uh, American Pediatric uh, Association set limits on screen time that have been thrown out the window. They've either been replaced or completely disregarded. So talking about screen time right now is, is really current. Um, advertising has increased recently and there's a trend in advertising to advertise for things that you might need during COVID um, I'm constantly getting ads uh, when I go online for masks, um, technology platforms, hand sanitizers, um, and uh, lots of entertainment. Hey, you're home. You can watch this, you know, on, uh, on a screen. And then there are the big sales for things you're going to need when you open up and go back. So uh, there's the things that you, that you want to talk about, like comfort. The idea of comfort right now is really, is really big and, and how to mentally and emotionally and physically provide the kind of comfort and security that you may need that you're not getting right now because of the uncertainty and insecurity. So you can talk about those things and you can do some research. I mean, if you don't feel, feel competent, you can do the research so that if you get called, uh, you do have a good backup. Uh, if you are serious about getting on the media and you are a member of the American Psychological Association, join Division 46, the media division. You will get uh, the Journal of Popular Media Culture and you'll constantly know what the changes are in research and what's really the, most, the newest and most important because screen time limits have changed. Uh, 
uh, what we knew about that is different and you, you really want to be aware of, uh, of that trend okay <clears throat> things that people are going to need when they go back out to reduce anxiety how do you reduce anxiety in your children if they have to go back to school is a great pitch uh, for right now um, and you want to stimulate hope you don't want to stimulate fear always in media take the high road and present the most positive thing that you can um, and uh, help people look forward uh, to remove the focus on what's wrong now and, and what could be, uh, could be right in the future, optimistic. Um, there are lots of things that I could post on social media about uh, technology that I don't because they're very, um, it's already out there, first of all, uh, the dangers of media, the dangers of social media, the dangers of too much screen time, and uh, people don't really want, to, they already know that if you're doing an interview, uh, you want to be positive. How can we counteract that? How can uh, we counteract the current trends? And what can we do to be more optimistic and more, uh, and achieve the comfort that we need? Uh, another big trend is t teaching through technology. Uh, whether you're a classroom teacher or a college instructor, um, you can talk about, or, or even if you ever were or have been, you can talk about the effect of the pandemic on students who are learning through tech, technology sources, and they don't get the chance to uh, go to college and have the college experience. And you might even focus on attention deficit. For students who have uh, an inability to focus, they have a lot of trouble with online learning. What are the options? What are the alternatives? Uh, and so on the plus side, you, on the plus side, you can do some work at your own pace uh, when downloads and classes are available. So, you know, there are upsides to doing online instruction. Uh, Division, Division 46 uh, psychologist Frank Farley uh, create, talks about creating opportunities for interaction that is better for social contact. Uh, he talks about how pre-recorded classes are better for many students' schedules and overall giving an opportunity for continued education. So uh, that's especially, especially uh, current. I talked about screen time, uh, what was regulated is no longer regulated, uh, and how uh, through screen time we can now remain socially connected, how it's become a positive thing and a better thing. You know, we used to be saying, you've got to restrict screen time. Now we're saying, let's all get on a big Zoom meeting and have a family reunion. And it offers you a feeling when you're feeling totally out of control of how to feel in control and, and own your personal power at a time when you might otherwise feel powerless. So these are all great angles for trends right now. Um, in the uh, spring issue of the, uh, the Amplifier, the Division 46 uh, newsletter, uh, Chrysalis Wright wrote about the impact of fake or unconfirmed news. Now, this is a trend. Fake news is clearly a trend, and it's probably not going away because even today uh, during the COVID hearings I was watching, uh, they talked about uh, why people are doing things that uh, may seem to be counterproductive to uh, getting well. 
and uh, Chrysalis Wright wrote of the impact about, of fake news, particularly with regard to blaming China for the virus. And uh, what was happening, and it actually ended up being a letter that, that was uh, positioned from the American, Psychology, American Psychological Association to the White House, that was uh, really exposing the fact that, that this type of blame was increasing acts of harassment and violence on the Asian population in the United States and asking for words to be used uh, in a certain way. Uh, you can do the same thing right now uh, with uh, the Black Lives Matter. There are a lot of, there's a lot of information about how using words right now in the media can really uh, diffuse potentially uh, high-level situations. And uh, at the end of March, when the APA wrote the, uh, the position statement uh, stating that the virus should be destigmatized as belonging to China, uh, it was an attempt to reduce uh, online bullying and actually in-person bullying of the Asian population. So fake news can have a lasting impact. I would say that if this is your first exposure to a topic, uh, anyone's first exposure to a topic and you're presented with fake news, that, uh, that fake news can really become embedded and other points of view may not be able to overcome your initial impression. So uh, people quote these conspiracy theories to me regularly and, and really believe them because, um, because that's what they hear and that's what they see. And so fake news is not going away and it's, it's a huge trend. And there's going to, and the, the other thing about technology, technology is a trend. Uh, and we didn't have psychology or technology to talk about in the field of psychology until it hit the market like gangbusters. And so now psychology is trying to catch up. They're trying to do the research. What is the research on screen time? What is the research? Uh, we've always had research on the effect of violence uh, through television. That was some of the earliest research. But there's, there's now a psychology of technology that didn't exist before. This in itself is a trend. Um, and a psychologist who is, is good with media can really address the fact that we now need a whole psychology. We need research. We need to look at uh, what we know and what we don't know and find out a whole lot more about the impacts of things like fake news, like uh, social media bullying, because this is new. This is a new field in the whole, in the, uh, whole area of psychology. Now, there, I, I talked about a lot of specific trends. I just want to make a uh, comment on a couple of general trends. Um, <clears throat> online bullying has been around for a while. That, that's still a general trend. But it may be uh, more impactful now when people don't have other types of social reinforcement. Okay, uh, Blogging is a trend. Google is a trend. The idea of, quote, internet addiction. Uh, gaming disorder. Gaming disorder is real. It's an actual diagnosis. It's the only aspect of media that has a diagnosis. And, um, you know, online bullying, back to the article by uh, Chrysalis Wright, the, uh, the letter that was, uh, was sent based on this, online bullying based on current events. What type of online bullying? Okay, what is it? What, what group is being targeted? What are some ways to use words that uh, really are healthy for people and help uh, with, with people getting along? Back to the original purpose of television, Philo T. Farnsworth, let's all get to know each other uh, so we can all get along better. So uh, sometimes things come full circle. 
Um, and then, you know, online instruction is clearly a general trend. Uh, and it's, it's been around, but uh, it, it's really taking off right now. And the expansion of reality TV, right now, it's, uh, you know, people are losing money. Uh, movie producers are losing money. Television networks are losing money. Reality TV is cheaper. And so we're seeing all these game shows and all this reality TV. There's, I, write, I wrote a whole chapter on reality TV and Get Real because uh, reality TV is an important topic because people think that these are real role models doing real things when usually it's a mix. There's, there's some real plots going on and then there's some stage plots going on. And again, this takes us back to role modeling and what to believe. Uh, and, and, and how to talk about reality TV to people uh, so that there's, uh, again, conscious viewing, okay? So, uh, Amelia, a long time ago, you asked about trends in research. Would you like to get to the research now? Yeah, absolutely. The okay. more the merrier. <laughs> Anything um, about what we've talked about so far uh, with regard to pitching to the media that you want to expand on before we move forward? Can't think of anything. I thought you gave a very thorough, you know, in-depth approach of how we can do it. Like I'm sitting here going, I would have never thought of half of this. So it's very useful. And, and that's the thing. If you're not used to working in the media and haven't been doing it a lot, you, you don't think. E even uh, with, with all the years I've been doing it, I, I, I miss opportunities. I don't think, oh, I could have told this reporter that I know really well, hey, if you're doing an article on this, um, I could speak to it. You, you really have to kind of have your eyes and ears tuned. And that's what uh, subscribing to Harrow and, the, um, and to uh, Joan Stewart's uh, online uh, tips helps you to do. It helps to jog your memory so that you do think of it. And so, yeah, we don't. It's not just you. <laughs> it's not just you, Amelia. It's like the one, one of the few things we don't actually, you know, learn in grad school. So it's opportunities like this to talk to somebody like you who studies it and who has been in it for a while. And, you know, and then there's people like me who I attend webinars and I read stuff on the internet and hope that I know what I'm talking about. Um, so it's getting this opportunity is great because you're right. Like, um, even just thinking about the stuff that I know, like, I feel like I'm very small and pigeonholed, but I probably can speak to a lot more than I necessarily give myself credit for. And I'm sure lots of psychologists and uh, clinicians will feel the same way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you don't know that you can address the, uh, the uh, damage done by a flasher until you have to do it. <laughs> exactly. Right. I, I have crisis intervention training. Like, this is perfect, you <laughs> know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> the steps are the same, right? Exactly. <laughs> you advise the kids on what to do if they see the flasher. You know, there, there, there are certain structures that are in place that we know work. And so as psychologists, we really... Um, I won't say we have a responsibility, but I would say we are uh, the right emissaries to be bringing mental health information to the media because there's always somebody out there that's not terribly credentialed, who is more aggressive than you are and is going to be out there presenting information that's not going to be what, what you as a, as a therapist or a psychologist can offer. That's a little encouragement. That's true. Um, before we get into the other research, uh, sure. How do we tackle topics that the psychology field might be, you know, separated by? Um, for instance, you've brought up um, gaming addiction or uh, gaming use disorder. Um, I know that there's 
the World Health Organization has chosen to identify it as um, a diagnosis, but the American Psychiatric Association has not. And of course, you know, the World Health Organization is looking at, you know, the Asian countries and how they seem to be really like stuck on to like multi-player uh, online games where they just get lost for hours at a time to the point that they neglect everything. And then, you know, for the APA here in the U.S., they're like, well, there might be an issue, but, you know, it's not, it's not <laughs> like what we're seeing over, you know, overseas. Okay. Um, well, that has me, two separate sides to that. Like, yeah, how do you let me talk? That? Can I talk about gaming a little bit? Yeah, go for it. As a topic. Okay. So um, the World Health Association declared gaming disorder a disorder, mm -hmm. and the American Psychological Association kind of took offense to that because, uh, they're, you know, they're the ones that are supposed to be, uh, you know, assigning diagnos diagnostic codes. Yeah. Now, it's become accepted as a disorder, even though you can't put it on an insurance statement and bill a session on gaming disorder because it's not a legal diagnosis. Okay? Right. But because it's, it's been out there so much by the World Health Organization and it's been picked up, um, it really goes back to, uh, it's connected very much to a gambling disorder. Uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of the games are involved gambling and they're uh, interfaced with gambling. And uh, the games themselves are uh, related to gaming, gaming disorders related to too much screen time. It's related to everything we talked about with trance, with uh, media hypnosis, with screen hypnosis. There's so many things we can talk about with gaming disorder uh, because it's new. And although we may not in the US identify it as the issue that it could be in other places, I would bet that gaming uh, use has increased dramatically during COVID. So this is a trend. Okay, so we can just kind of put, put it in perspective of what we know. Uh, and, and as I said earlier, we don't have a lot of uh, technology uh, diagnostic codes, but we have symptoms. We have symptoms of internet addiction. We have symptoms and we can look at those symptoms as they affect our mental health and well-being. Is that, is that kind of what you were looking for? Or even just you happen to be part of an interview where um, a psychologist or a clinician is on a different side of something. You know, you, you all can both agree on the symptoms, you can agree on the history of it, but you happen to take one side and they happen to take another. Or is, are those kind of things as psychologists we should try to avoid? Well, that will happen because you don't know and a reporter isn't going to tell you who else they're interviewing. That's true. And so, um, and that's happened to me. Um, and, and it's not that someone, or they'll interview me and then they'll interview a doctor or a physician who will take a different point of view. Or they'll interview uh, somebody who uh, designs games, you know, internet games for gaming. Uh, they'll interview that person. And so you are probably going to find yourself doing an interview, especially for a journalist, where there are different points uh, of view. And if you've ever noticed, they like that. They're looking for somebody to disagree with you because that, that makes things interesting. Uh, the push-pull, you know, even on the news, when you're watching the news, you'll see uh, somebody that'll say, you know, this is, this is a good thing and somebody will say this is a bad thing. And reporters are looking for that. So don't be upset and don't be insulted if someone disagrees with you. Just know, uh, know your content know that you're comfortable in what you've said. And if somebody from another um, 
even even another therapist who says, well, like let's say I, I say that the screen time is is really related to TV hypnosis, and somebody else says, no, it's related to something else. That's okay. It doesn't change the validity of what either one of us are saying just because we don't agree. Somebody would say that uh, cognitive behavior therapy is the best thing for trauma, and somebody would say EMDR is the best thing for trauma, and it's okay <laughs> to have different points of view, but be prepared in an interview that somebody may disagree with you, and it could even be another psychologist. Perfect. You've got to be ready. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was looking for because yeah. I, I have to imagine it might be uncomfortable, especially mm -hmm. if you read the article and didn't realize that, you know, it's you on one side and somebody on the other side and they're kind of picking through both arguments. So that was very, that was very insightful. Thank you. Uh, the, the research is just, uh, hey, this is what's happening. This is what's being researched. This is what we now know. Um, and I want to start out uh, just in case we run short of time with the most, what I find the most interesting thing and the most uh, human, human interest kind of research. There was a uh, research study at the University of Duisburg-Eisen about repeatedly viewing acts of human kindness in online videos that proved it could increase pro-social motivation and improve concepts of human beings just by watching people being kind in online videos. This threw me back to the earlier research. This was, this was health research on uh, a study that looked at people viewing positive videos, just positive videos, not necessarily acts of human kindness, just videos about positive things. And at that time, there was only one video that created a change in health. And the way that they uh, measured the change in health was to measure the immune function of the saliva, okay? So they actually had a biofeedback mechanism to use as people were viewing these positive videos. And there was only one video that had any effect on immune functioning. And it was a video of Mother Teresa ministering to people in Calcutta. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, back to my original hypothesis <laughs> that Philo T. Farnsworth, when he invented the television so that we could get to know each other and like each other, uh, videos of human kindness. Are, and now we're, we're seeing right now in the present, study presented just in the spring of uh, videos of human kindness improving uh, behavior, uh, ideas about each other, uh, which was the original purpose of media. So uh, I like that study the best out of everything that's coming out right now. Uh, Texas A&M did a, a study on body image, which pretty much uh, coincides with most of the research on body image and viewing. Uh, those with uh, body dissatisfaction before viewing are much more likely to walk away with a negative concept uh, of, of themselves and, and maybe experience an impact uh, on self-esteem. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, Boston University study because it talks about something we've looked at, which is violence in popular shows and perception. And this was where the um, where the research came uh, that showed that people who uh, are watching a lot of violence have a, a higher incidence of a perception of a mean world. And I talked about that a little bit earlier, that they uh, feel less safe 
And the Boston University uh, showed that there was a higher incidence of perception of a mean world, and they're less likely to perceive um, people as altruistic, which definitely uh, has an impact on violence and TV viewing, which again goes back to the first research on television. Uh, does violence cause violent behavior? Yeah. Um, which is now, you know, now we're looking at do violent video games cause violent behavior? Um, there's been uh, research on both sides, but there's nothing that's really proven that they definitely do. Um, and that's where we are at the moment. That can change because there's been so much uh, uh, research on both sides of that topic. So again, this is a trend, uh, violent video games. Uh, University of uh, Arizona did a study on smartphones and loneliness. And uh, smartphone dependency was predicted by uh, relation, relationship satisfaction. So if a person feels comfortable about their uh, relationships and the satisfaction that they experience in their relationships, they're not as likely to feel lonely losing a smartphone. But here's where um, the problem comes in. People get, um, when they get, when they look at the, the, the new trends with phones and loneliness, uh, the amount of texting that someone does with you has become a marker of your social status. So, um, well, so-and-so commented, everybody commented on that person's post and they didn't comment on my post. Or um, I, I texted uh, this person and they didn't text me back, you know, and, and I've heard this a lot. I've heard this a lot from, from people I know, from clients, uh, that they measure their status with a person by quickly, how quickly they text them back. Uh, it, it's, uh, and it's very damaging. And it's very damaging to relationships to hear somebody on the other side of the line saying, hey, why didn't you text me back? So there's a certain pressure about texting that, uh, and we won't even get into sexting because that's just, you know, a whole other topic. But uh, yeah, texting and smartphones and loneliness, uh, these are all issues that uh, are somewhat, somewhat relevant uh, uh, today. Um, there was a study at the uh, University of Queensland that showed that Facebook-based social support had an impact on health in the following ways. It had an impact on phys physical health, general health, and mental health, and they were all improved with social support from Facebook, and they had reduced feelings of loneliness and symptoms of depression and anxiety. If we look at the flip side, like we just did, but if you're not getting it, it can have the opposite effect, okay? Uh, Penn State University um, did a study on celebrity identification and diet. Now, this goes to ads for diet, and again, I have no, uh, no connection, positive or negative, to any product or, uh, or program, but uh, there are certain celebrities that will... Uh, endorse certain diets because they worked for them. And uh, how much you like a celebrity uh, and your identity with that celebrity has an impact on whether you will accept dietary information, even that that can be potentially damaging to your health. So now uh, the, the study was looking at, so let's say that uh, somebody uh, in pop culture uh, is influencing the way you eat, and maybe uh, it makes you more more vulnerable to diet-related misinformation because you like that celebrity. 
Okay, and the anecdote for that is to hear another celebrity de delivering uh, different messages that are inspiring and more accurate. Uh, we don't always get that, <laughs> but you will get one of the doctors. You will get, we'll get one of the doctors to get online and say, mm, I, we don't really find that this is the healthiest diet. And uh, on that, in that domain uh, with diet and media, um, everybody's got the perfect diet uh, that you should follow and they, none of them agree, speaking of disagreements, <laughs> okay, by uh, experts. So <laughs> if I could, I'd like to con conclude with a quote uh, from Time Magazine that was uh, given by the Dalai Lama, okay? And this kind of sums it up. He says, do, the question was, do, do, do Facebook and Twitter hurt or help our happiness? And this relates right to, directly to our research. And he said, it depends on how you use them. If a person has a certain inner strength, a certain confidence, then it is no problem. But if an individual is weak, then there is more confusion. You can't blame technology. It depends on the user of the technology. I think that is an amazing way to wrap up this interview. Dr. Nancy, thank you so much for coming on Psychology Radiocast. Um, is there any way that, speaking of social media, is there any way we can find you? Um, those that listen to the podcast can follow up with some of your resources. Sure. Um, my web address is www.realconsciousliving, R-E-A-L, realconsciousliving.com. And my web address, the easiest one is, is Dr. Mar Dr. Maramor, D-R-M-R-A-M-O-R at gmail.com. And I'd, I'd love to talk to people uh, about some of this and be happy to uh, help people who are trying to, uh, to, to get more involved with it. Wonderful. Once again, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to sit down with us. Oh, uh, I'm happy to do. As you can see, I kind of enjoy this topic. Absolutely. I can feel <laughs> it. It was good to just sit and soak in all this information. This is great. Oh, thank you so much. It was, it was my pleasure and my honor. Thanks for listening to this episode of Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. We'd love to hear ideas from you about important or fascinating topics that we might cover. Email us at ppa at papsy.org. You can also find us at papsy.org. Our project manager and audio editor is Amelia Herbst. Logo and artwork designed by Camille St. James. Music orchestrated by Raquel Emder and Ross Mann. Special thanks to PPA staffer Judy Huntley and PPA members Jessica Black, Bernard Seif, Kim Wesley, Lee Burnett, Cassandra Parrish, Lavanya Devdas, Nancy Raymore, and Molly Cowan for helping to make this podcast possible. As always, the views of our guests may not necessarily reflect those of PPA as an association. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. David Zarung.